0: The Art of Leadership Network.
1: Welcome to the Kerry Neuhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Kerry here. This is episode 528. We're going to talk to Les McEwen. He is back on the podcast. If he is new to you, you are going to absolutely enjoy this episode. There's a reason I keep bringing him back, and uh, well, today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. You can get your communications and creative work done for less than one staff hire with Pro Media Fire. Book your free consultation today at promediafirecom carry. And by Belay, get your free download of Belay's CEO's latest book. Rise up and lead well by texting my name, Carrie C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. Well, Les McEwen is back. He is the founder of Predictable Success. He's also the CEO there. He is a globally recognized growth leadership coach and consultant and the author of four books, including his latest, Do Lead, Share Your Vision, Inspire Others, and Achieve the Impossible. And the thing I love about Les is when I read, I think I discovered him about a decade ago, I read Predictable Success. And it's like my leadership life, Flash Before My Eyes. All the stages of leadership, all the stages of the church and now the company I, I I led flash before my eyes. And I reached out to him to see if we could connect. And we did. And we're going to revisit some of that earlier content from Les. He's been on the podcast several other times. I recommend... You go back into the archive to discover the treasure trove of wisdom that less is. Uh, But we're going to take it to the next level with this conversation today. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating and review. And we want to say welcome to all the leaders who are listening from the church world, the business world. A lot of you are new. We want to say thank you for tuning in. We know your time is valuable. I do not intend to waste it. In fact, I think you'll get a lot out of today's conversation. And make sure you check out our partners too. So, for example... Some of you have been hit by the challenge of inflation, and you see staff leaving for higher-paying jobs. Staff turnover is at an all-time high. And did you know that in the communications, media, and creative departments, staff turnover is 30% annually? If you're a boss, you know how bad that is. Well, there is a way to get your communications and creative work done for less than a staff hire by using ProMediaFire. There's no cost of health benefits, no payroll tax, and no risk of scrambling for help with two weeks notice. If you've been a boss, you've been there. So if you want Pro media Fire's help with any or all of the following custom website design and weekly website maintenance, complete social media management, graphic design, video creation, or digital strategy, then book your free consultation today. Simply go to ProMediaFire.com slash Carrie. That's promediafire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And as a busy leader, when you stop and think about all the things you do every day, they begin to add up and they add up quickly. And maybe your organization has grown because of your hard work and endless hours, but you're wondering, is this the time to hire help? And here's the challenge. You can't find the right person. If you've ever been there or you're there right now, our friends at Belay can help. Belay is a modern staffing solution I've used multiple times, and they have over 11 years experience. They have successfully matched thousands of clients with virtual assistants, financial specialists, social media, and web specialists. And today, Belay is offering our listeners a free download of their CEO's latest book, Rise Up and Lead Well. In the book, she shares everything she's learned in her journey from being an assistant to now running the company. She's the CEO and she has successfully delegated and you can too. So to claim your free copy of Rise Up and Lead Well, simply text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 55123. Get the support you need to get out of the administrative weeds and get back to growing your organization with Belay Text Carrie C A R E Y to 55123. And now for another deep dive into my conversation with Les McEwen. Les welcome back to the podcast.
0: It's great to be back again, Carrie. Hi, everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is like round four. And (laughs) I think you started back around like episode one. I'm gonna say one oh three. I'm probably wrong on that, but it was a it was a while ago that you were on. And I would encourage
0: as we record.
1: What's that? what, are what number are we, we on recall? i don't yeah. know what this will be but we're in the 520s or 530s now oh, my so you you might be 550 or something we work a long time in advance but yeah no we've done over 500 episodes and 25 million downloads in counting. insane wow wow, yeah. wow.
0: that's yeah. just very impressive
1: well i think it, i think it's because of that first interview you did you know no that <laughs> that, that was a that was a pivotal one um you're right and, have all been fun <laughs> Uh, they've been great. I'll tell you, it's been it's been amazing. But uh, I do want people to go back and sort of listen to the earlier conversations because we really talk about your one of your seminal books, Predictable Success. Then we talk about The Synergist. Then we talk about Scaling, the difference between growing and scaling. So if you just search my name and Les McEwen, you will find the whole host of episodes. And uh, today we're going to talk about what's changed. And we're also going to talk about leadership and how that's changing as well. So, um, no, but it is good to have you back. So I want to ask you, the last few years have been really hard on a lot of leaders in a lot of different industries less. And when you look at the landscape now, what are the qualities or the characteristics, you know, coming out of the pandemic, heading into 2023, what are the qualities and characteristics that seem to be separating the leaders who are doing okay, if not crushing it? from the leaders who are
0: maybe still struggling or not making it? Two things. Uh, First of all, something I call consistency of purpose. Uh, In other words, the folks who know why they're doing this uh, and are committed to it, uh, have come out in my observation stronger than those who found themselves in positions of leadership and weren't too sure how they got there or why. (laughs) And the second thing connected to that is Uh, Resilience. It's just been a time, as you and our listeners know, you know, at least as well as I do. It's just been a time when you've just had to hang on at times. Just you know, be resilient. And those two things, I think, are very connected. You can have leaders who are naturally resilient. They uh, just—I like to think about it. When I was a kid, you enjoy this. uh, I grew up back in the UK, as some of the listeners may remember. And the thing to get at Christmas was a present, a toy, preferably, from the U.S. Now, this is way pre-prime, way pre-internet, way pre-anything. So we got real presents, real gifts, real things, physical things. And I got a blow-up, stick with me here, a blow-up model of Yogi Bear. And many of our listeners will have no idea. They'll think I'm talking about Yogi Bear. I'm not That's talking fantastic. about That's fantastic. I remember Yogi Yogi Bear. Yogi Bear, cartoon character. What's up, Boo Boo? Mm -hmm. And the thing about this Yogi Bear was actually, it's an incredible uh, exercise in uh, uh, what should we call it? Uh, Weariness uh, management by my mother. This Yogi Bear was blown up. It was about, came up to about my chest. I had a big smirk in his face and it was essentially a punching bag and it was bottom weighted. So you'd smack this thing and it would teeter over and wobble. Uh, it would, if you hit it hard enough, it would go down and touch the floor, but it would bounce right back up again with that big smirky smile. It drove me crazy. and I spent, you know, like hours pounding this thing. And, um, most, uh, natural leaders, uh, and many, uh, self-made leaders have a high, they have that degree of resilience, right? That's why they're successful. You hit them, they come back up. You hit them, they come back up. However. Even with that, if you don't have a consistency of purpose, if, you, if you're not on the way back up thinking to yourself, why am I doing this again? That's been tough. So that's what I've seen over the last couple of years. Hmm. You know, it's
1: interesting you mentioned purpose because if you're a church leader, that should be front and center, but it so easily gets lost. And you and I were chatting before we hit record. We're in the major rethink as a company right now. And we've got a pivotal retreat coming up. And, you know, my guess is most of my audience won't notice the difference, but we're going to notice the difference because we're going to get very, very hyper-specific on exactly what we do, more so than we have been in the past. But I was reading Arthur Brooks' book. I don't know whether you know his work, but it's called From Strength to Strength. One of the things yes. he said is when you get to a certain age, uh, you have to have a really big problem like a, and and he defines it as an interesting problem to work on. And I combine that with an interview Tim Ferriss did with Rulof uh, Bota, which was a fascinating interview. We'll link to it in the show notes, where he talked about the founder problem and the founder fit problem. So if you're the founder of a company like Elon Musk, great example, you know, what's he trying to do? Colonize Mars. Like, okay, that's probably going to exhaust him. It's an interesting problem. And it's going to take the rest of his life and the lifetime of many thousands of other people to even remotely accomplish it. And I have been thinking about, okay, what is a really interesting problem to work on for the next 20 years? And like, I, you wouldn't believe the difference in motivation I've felt just redefining the problem, which does that go to the Why?
0: It? Yeah, that, and, and, and I would underline an, uh, your recommendation of uh, Brooks' latest book. Uh, I, I he, he's been doing a book tour and doing a whole bunch of podcasts. And if you can grab any of him, just Google it and you'll find him. Uh, he speaks is really well. The request is in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he speaks very well about his uh, work as well, which not every author does, as you've discovered, I'm sure. Uh, and and his uh, uh, essentially what he, when he talks about an inter, it's in, in essence consistency of purpose and one of the things that I talk about in do lead is that uh, many leaders particularly self-starters people who see leadership from afar and sort of think oh I would like to do that as opposed to natural leaders maybe talk about the difference a little later um they don't ha- they don't have one to start with. And and I talk about just renting a a sense of purpose. There's nothing wrong with that. You're better with a rented sense of purpose than no sense of purpose at all. And so, for example, somebody can come into a church and work as, you know, the worship pastor, and it doesn't have to be their forever leadership position. It doesn't have to even be their forever church. It can be, and this might sound a little cold-blooded, it can be their training, a leadership training role, you know, it's just where they get the sense of what it means to be a leader and then I talk further on in the book about becoming an Uber leader, which is a horrible phrase. If, if I if, I, if I, I, I suspect I wrote that subsection when I was tired. I should have thought of a better phrase. It's but the Ubermensch. Nietzsche. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, particularly as leaders in Uber I haven't had a particularly good press recently. It's maybe not been the best analogy, but I talk about having... Uh, Moving to the point where you're 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 not just a leader, but you're you're, you've achieved mastery in leadership, and at that point there tends to be a self-sustaining consistency of purpose. Which is in your world at the moment, you're rethinking that, and that's perfectly valid. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's better making a shift of your consistency of purpose than just drifting, because then you'll begin to feel unfulfilled.
1: Well, to put put legs on it, I mean, if I was a local church pastor, it's like I know that there are 300,000 unchurched people within a 30-minute drive of our locations. That's a big enough problem and, and an interesting enough problem to spend right. a lot of your energy and time on, and, and it's somewhat unsolvable. Um, okay, so purpose. But Les, you strike me as a resilient leader. I mean, you've been through 40-plus businesses, which is insane. Um, bought and sold, been a partner in, etc. You've written multiple books. You're well beyond the age or financial position where you have to work, but you still enjoy doing it. What What are some of the characteristics that have made you resilient?
0: Um, Need is a big one, big driver. Uh, You know, I've been, I've I've shared this in in, uh, other discussions publicly, so I'm not making a revelation that's not known. But I I have quite literally, without hyperbole. Being in the fetal position, I I mean, not literally physically in the fetal position, you know, sobbing and uh, distressed to the point of, I don't think I've ever had, uh, and I'm not saying this to demean it, by any stretch, I'm saying it with a great sense of of blessing. I don't think I've ever had severe mental health challenges, but I've ever got close to it, it was in those occasions, Um, because I couldn't pay the bills, you know, for no other reason. I just, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't keep the lights on, and that makes you very resilient. But the thing that underpinned it was that, and and which made me resilient, a couple of other factors which I'll add in a second or two, it just comes back to consistency of purpose. And for me, the rented consistency of purpose before I developed predictable success, the delivery of which is now my consistency of purpose, helping people grow or scale their organizations for profit or not for profit. The rented one was just a, a, a drive for independence. Uh, I, I, I know I, I had a real job, as they say, until my early twenties. Uh, I started working for myself in my early twenties, was twenty-two or twenty-three. I've never worked for anyone since then. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that got me back up, like Yogi Bear, from those fetal positions and many, many other less existential challenges is just that gritted teeth determination that I I, I wanted to maintain my own independence. And that's, uh, in the for-profit world, it's no secret that that's the key driver for most founders. Hmm. It's a somewhat hidden, still very true reality in the church world. It's just it doesn't sit just as well. There are quite a few church leaders leave and church plant and, you know, forgive me, dress it as a vision of, you know, God told me to go to this place. But underneath it all, if you really scratch it, there's a need to do your own thing. I just want my own church. Now, that, that can be perfect. That can be good. It can be neutral. It can be problematic. It doesn't have to be any of those. I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying independence, the need for independence and drive, autonomy, put it that way. You know, one definition of an entrepreneur is somebody who stops working 40 hours a week for somebody else to work 80 hours a week for themselves. And and that's true. And so resi- that builds a lot of resilience. It's just a gritted teeth determination that I, I want to do this thing and I want to do it my own way. Subsequently, then it became, for me, a commitment to, I had discovered this model. I didn't I didn't invent it. I, I, I uncovered it and I gave it vocabulary. We've talked about it many times on the podcast. And delivering that has become my consistency of purpose. I, I think the other uh, two things that contributed. Uh, so need was one of them. Um, the two other things were clarity, first of all. And I, and I've if I've taught myself one thing, it's to try to give discipline to being clear, as you're doing with your upcoming retreat about you know what what does the next quarter look like? What does the next year look like? What does the next five? I have a <laughs> 66 years of age. I have a 25 year rolling game plan, and it's. You know, the further I go, the more it's an outline, but I want clarity and it doesn't mean I'm going to stick to it. It just means I, I I know roughly where I'm headed. I know very much where I'm headed in the near term. I know quite well where I'm headed in the medium term and I know pretty well where I want to be headed in the long term. I'm open to it changing, but that clarity. And the final thing is I think the most underused skill of leadership, which is the strategic ability to say no. Uh, I see that undermine more leaders than anything else is they don't build the muscle of being able to strategically say no. And so they end up saying yes to everything. It all leaks backwards. Say yes to everything, you lose your clarity and your resilience begins to drain. It doesn't get easier
1: though. You know, over the last (laughs) 10 days, I've had to say no to some really, well, I have chosen to say no to some very big opportunities and disappoint some people on, you know, not my inner circle, but not that far from the inner circle. And, you know, part of me is like, oh, like one guy asked for 15 minutes of my time. My team and I talked about it. We said no. And I'm like, you jerk. You're going to be sitting on your back (laughs) porch doing nothing, but it's the, it's the 15, 15 minutes that add up and it it doesn't get easier. What is, what helps you learn to say no? Because I completely agree. It is a, a very hard skill to master, one that not a lot of leaders have, but every successful leader I know has it. So, what what helps you do that?
0: I, I the the thing that helps me. I, I'm hoping that um let me start the sentence again. I, I'm hoping that a, a good ninety eight percent of what we're going to talk about will be helpful in some way, some part of it to our, our listeners. Clearly. My answer to this one question is not going to be helpful. Then I will give an a a, a, a helpful answer. But the truthful answer for me is I, I don't really care what other people think about me. I really don't. Uh, I, I I've it's taken me a long time to accept that because I didn't want to believe that about me. It doesn't mean that I don't really value people. I've thought about this a lot. It doesn't mean that I don't Amen. value relationships. It doesn't mean I don't listen to people. It doesn't mean that I don't care what they say and and take it on board and adjust. But if I make a decision about something, I've got to the point in my career, as you've very kindly pointed out, I'm, I'm close to ancient these days, where I know that if I'm saying no to something, it's not because I'm being a bit of a jerk or worse. A lot of that's associated, I think, with the imposter syndrome, which I'm sure we're going to get into in various uh, uh, ways as we talk about leadership. That's just something I set out to beat. uh, And I believe, I, I mean, I still suffer from it from time to time, but I, by and large, have pretty much beat it, which means I'm comfortable when I say that. Now, not everybody is in that position. Uh, of having built that carapace or whatever it may be. And I actually wouldn't recommend it as (laughs) as a coping mechanism. It's it's got a lot of downsides to it. So that's the bit that I'm not suggesting is helpful to other people, but I wanted to give you an an honest answer to the question. You
1: you have to develop. It's like uh, Seth Godin, right? They don't get the joke.
0: So Okay, it's not for them. Correct. Uh, And uh, so what I've seen in other leaders, and which I I also use, which is very helpful, is to get, uh, because it's a subset of our clarity thing, be very, very clear about what floats your boat. You know, what do you really enjoy doing and what are you not? Uh, you know, there are many people for whom the notion of, you know, spending 15 minutes with somebody, that's the whole, you know, that's the whole reason I'm doing all this. So, yeah, I'm going to say yes to everything. And if you try to say no to all of that, you'll just get very frustrated. You know, you just, you can't do it. So understanding what you like to do and what you don't like to do is, is, I think uh, very obviously, and I think the second thing that, and it's a tool that I use a lot, and I find, feel very helpful. I find it very helpful is I treat time as a as what it is, a very finite resource. Uh, I ha- I'm looking uh, away from uh, your fine visage here because I've got a second monitor, and on that monitor is my calendar, and I have an ideal day sitting right beside my actual day today, And that ideal day moves forward every morning. It's sitting there looking at me, what I want to spend my time on, and what my calendar tells me. And that helps me say no to a lot of things.
1: Oh my goodness. Okay, well, I got to go there. What does your ideal day look like
0: for you at this point in your life? So, uh, I like to finish what I'm teed up to do for the day by 3 p.m. Eastern, which is the time zone that I'm on. It doesn't mean to say I'm just gonna sit and stare into the walls, but I wanna have my I wanna have my major deliverables done for the day by 3 p.m. So there's a hard stop at that. I've got my morning workout, I've got the time that I'm that I come to sit here. I've got a little routine, which when I click on it, it opens up and it just reminds me of the things that I want to look at or meditate about for probably half an hour at the start of the morning. And then I have two key blocks in the day. They're just blue, literally blue blocks and they're empty because that's where I'm, I'm not going to take a call. I'm not going to see somebody for 15 minutes. I'm not going to, I've got, cause that's when I'm going to, I have my, my work involves me producing deliverables. I've got, so this, this morning I, I. Zoomed into a client board meeting and del- and delivered their strategic plan. So that was a deliverable. Last week, my blue blocks in the morning. First one w- was dedicated to doing that. The second one might be dedicated to something else. I have my lunchtime is scheduled. But th- none of this means that this all happens this way. That's the, that's the whole point. I would die if I thought I, I was going to live Groundhog Day and do everything exactly the same. That's not the goal. The goal is not to live every day the same. The goal is to know what's my North Star in terms of my use of time. And and everything's at, everything after that's a negotiation, as my friend Rob Poynton would say. Everything's a negotiation. And when somebody says, you know, could you give me fifteen? Uh, no, <laughs> I can't do that. I'm terribly sorry.
1: Yeah. So the other thing I want to say about resilience is we've known each other for, I don't know, five or six years now, maybe less. And another thing I've, I've, I really admire about you is your ability to change and pivot. So there was a time where you were scaling predictable success, right? You had a team, a CEO, the whole deal. And then you let a bunch of us know, hey, I'm shutting this all down. And you shut it all down. And now it's basically a solo operation. And, you know, a lot of of people wouldn't do that. A lot of people would say, no, bigger is better. But then sometimes you end up like you're feeling, you, you feel like you're in jail, right? Like right, you feel like, right. and of course you write about this in Predictable Success. You you go out of the stage of fun, you know, from startup to fun to predictable success, etc. And you you easily could have done it, but you you pivoted back. So talk talk about that transformation, because we didn't really touch on that in previous interviews. Right. And I would love to know, because I think a lot of people don't give themselves permission to rethink the decisions they've made.
0: Sure, particularly where they're fairly fundamental decisions and they impact other people a lot, which the, that decision did do. And by the way, I haven't just done it once; I've done it twice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the second time was was more fool me. That was that was my mistake because it all comes back to to, to the two markers that we talked are two of the markers that we talked about earlier: clarity and consistency of purpose. Um, I, as you mentioned, I started my whole world was as a serial entrepreneur. I actually started as a British equivalent of a CPA and then became a serial entrepreneur. And that was what the, I spent the first third of my of my career doing. And I did all of the bigger, bigger, bigger thing. That's where I learned my my trade. That's where I learned how to grow and then how to scale. And I built very large uh, businesses and organizations. So I've done it all. And I enjoyed it then. What I discovered subsequently is that the reason I was enjoying it was not because I was running at the Master License to Pizza Hut. It wasn't because I was selling pizzas. I didn't enjoy it because I owned a graphic design agency. It wasn't because I, because I, I had no good at graphic design. Even wasn't because of that. It wasn't because of the individual businesses. What I enjoyed was the pattern recognition. I didn't know it then, but the thing I was enjoying was learning my trade to then help other people. And once I started doing that, uh, it became really clear to me that i can either grow my own business or help other people grow theirs i can't do both and i don't want to do both and both occasions that i that uh, you've referred to the occasion you referred to in the earlier one i i had simply lost that clarity and had aggregated i didn't build and we're not talking about enormous numbers in both cases it was somewhere between 8 and 12 employees not a huge business But I had aggregated it. You know, it wasn't, I didn't plan it. It's sort of like, you know, oh, I I need somebody to help me with my social media. And so I go out and get a, you know, a contractor. And then it becomes a full-time job and I employ somebody. There was a period when, might be how we first met, I can't remember. uh, You know, I was on the speaking uh, Mm job And I needed somebody to manage the events for me and get the books shipped out. As you know, there's a lot of logistics involved. So I, I aggregated in both cases. And the second time, I uh, it was it was, it was the easiest way to aggregate anything at all. It was uh, you know my son was involved, it was a family member involved, and it was a sort of a natural path whereby he had he paid his due as a consultant. He had worked with me as like an intern every summer, and so it was natural to come work for me. And he then started hiring people and. And both times I ended up literally, I mean, again, no hyperbole, and I'm not being metaphorical here. Uh, I literally ended up both times just looking into the mirror and saying, what on earth are you doing? I I, I, I I would look at my calendar, which we just talked about, and there'd be interviews, hiring for more people. There'd be performance assessments. There'd be deployment discussions, none of which, is in my consistency of purpose. Not now. It was back in the day. Not now. And so on both occasions, uh, you know, that, this is where the unfortunate thing that I talked about earlier—that I don't recommend to anybody—it was very hard for me in both cases, knowing that this was going to be career changing for the other people involved, it was career changing for me too. But I didn't have any doubt that it was the right thing to do because the best thing for them. One, I mean, once your your boss realizes he do not want you around anymore. That's not a good Contracts, not a good employment relationship. So in both cases, I gave folks you know, a runway, I helped them get go find uh, other things to do, and went back to, and I, I've been very good about it. I'm on the sixth year now. Uh, sixth year, I should be getting a little coin or something of not having any employees. I've got one assistant who's currently snoring on the sofa beside me, has no opposable thumbs, and needs me to take him out and uh, walk him three times a day, and that's it.
1: And your happiness level is back where you want it to be,
0: hundred percent. Because I want personally, I want that freedom to look at that calendar and say, actually, you know what? On Thursday, I don't do any of that, and I've got good enough client relationships. I can email some folks and say, "Hey, can we push that meeting?" I'm just taking the day off. I, I don't do that very very often, but I I want the flexibility to be able to do that.
1: Wow. Well, uh, we're barely past the first question 25 (laughs) minutes into the conversation, which means it's a great conversation. But in the same way leaders have emerged resilient or not resilient, same thing with companies. I mean, my goodness, you have the hit of the pandemic, then you have inflation. Now you've got a possible recession coming. And some companies are going to grow, some are going to die, some are going to fold, some are going to wobble. Uh, What are a couple of the characteristics that you are noticing between the companies that are thriving, versus the companies, churches, organizations that are not?
0: Uh, Two things. So in in predictable success in the first book, uh, I talk about the life cycle that all organizations go through. You know, they-
1: You wanna run through the stages quickly, just so people- people Real real quickly,
0: we've we've got three growth stages, a peak stage, and then three decline stages. Growth stages are early struggle, which includes the startup phase. It's basically the existential time of trying to find your market. Uh, next stage, which I give a highly technical name to, I call it fun, and that's we find our market. We just do it. We're just doing it. And actually, everybody, everybody who starts a business, they think any organization starts a church. They think that's it. There's really just two stages. There's the early struggle and we might not get through that. Most people are well aware of that, but if we do, then there's the next stage It's called fun. And that from then on, it's just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, do that, get bigger, do that, get bigger. But what happens is during fun, because it's fun by and large, uh, people like what you're doing. You know, the new church is exciting. People want to come and be part of that. And so you grow, you get bigger. Then with size comes complexity. The complexity begins to overwhelm us. You hit a stage I call whitewater, which is really, where you got a decision to make, which is, do we go back to being that bijou boutique church, just, you know, doing a small amount of stuff really, really well, or do we want to scale? Do we want to become large? You want to become large, you've got to put some systems and processes in place, which in itself is a big challenge. don't time to talk about that. Go back to our first podcast we talk about it a lot. You put the right systems and processes in place, you get to predictable success, peak stage, or you've got the balance between creativity, innovation, risk-taking with repeatability, scalability, being able to rinse and repeat, do this again and again. Do the right things, you can stay there as long as you want. Typically what happens is we just did something that produced a lot of great results, which was to put some systems and processes in place, so let's do some more. We put too much in, we begin the decline stage, we start that with moving into a stage I call treadmill, where it just we sort of lost our mojo. Many of the listeners have been in churches or businesses like that. It's just it's okay, but don't have the spark it used to. And if you don't fix it at that point, you're going to fall into what I call the big rut, which is a long, slow slide into irrelevance. Look at the majority. I hear your listeners can get very cross with me, if they wish, but you look at the majority of the very large denomination, old line denominations. They're in the big rut. It's a long, slow decline into irrelevancy, with not much happening to fix that. And ultimately, you'll go through death rattle. Whenever there might looks like something's happening, but basically, we're just putting this thing uh, out to out to grace. Those those are the uh, stages. The the distinguishing factor in those uh, organizations that I've seen emerge out of not just this, but the, the pandemic was was undoubtedly way beyond anything that I've ever experienced in my lengthy career. But I have been through the Great Recession, you know, the big financial bust in 2008, um, monolithic uh, um, inflation uh, back in the UK in the early 80s. I've seen a lot of very, very uh, existential times for businesses and not-for-profits. And it's been the same thing each time. In the book, I talk about, at the back of the book, very few people get there because that's what the good stuff is, but it's hard reading. Um, I, I show something I call the scalability matrix, which are 13 things. I'm not going to talk about them. 13 things you got to do to get into predictable success. Stuff like getting your org chart right, getting your roles and responsibilities. Right. Two of them, and they're the two that are like uh, capstones, they lock the whole thing into place, are the ability to innovate institutionally. Not the ability to innovate because you've got a person who's a good innovator, but the ability to institutionally innovate. And secondly, the ability to, to man, what, do what I call manage key changes. And that means being able to be flexible. It incorporates a few other things, but essentially flexibility. So you can innovate and then nobody wants to do it, right? Or you can be very flexible, but have no idea what you're doing. Uh, you know, watch a baby, incredibly flexible, but got no control whatsoever, right? Um, the the churches, the businesses that have come through this last really tough time best had uh, the ability to both innovate and then the flexibility internally to implement that. And uh, I'll, I'll make one very COVID-specific point because I feel that it's got to be a lesson that we learn: pivoting is not innovation. A lot of people thought they were they were going to get through this by doing something called pivoting. It became the keyword in the church world. It was essentially go online, right? Right. If you're not there, go online. That is not pivoting. Is not innovating. It's just doing what everybody else is now doing, and it's necessary but it's just a hygiene factor. It's just, that's the least we've got to do. The innovation is how do we do it in a way that differentiates us and makes us relevant, right? There are an awful lot of, not just, I mean, not going to beat up in the church, huge number of businesses went online, uh, but that didn't guarantee them success. Like restaurants went online, you you, you know, you dial in your order, go get it yourself. Um, uh, People who were doing training, coaching, consulting, my world, a lot of folks went online, started putting courses up there. You can do that and put some pretty cruddy courses up, and that's not innovating, right? No. So innovate. I think the two things I saw were innovation and then the internal flexibility as an organization. Even if there's only 10 of us, we're flexible enough to actually implement that stuff as opposed to just coming up with a beautiful, you know, there's. I used to talk about people would come to workshops and then take their binder back and it would go to binder heaven, you know? you All those great ideas. Uh A whiteboard heaven is probably full right now. You know, the number (laughs) of
1: incredible
0: innovative ideas that people came up with over the last three to five years. But did they get implemented? No, because the folks weren't flexible enough to do it. Uh, We tried that before. It didn't work. It wouldn't work for our congregation. Uh, I don't know that she has the ability to do that, you know, all that sort of stuff.
1: I've I've thought about that, working with leaders over the last few years, as a distinction between innovation and adaptation. When everybody went online, we adapted. You had no choice. Right, right. It's like shut the doors, adapt. But the difference between innovation and adaptation, I think you're right, is that next gear, that next iteration, that, okay, we're here to stay, versus, right. oh, as soon as the mandates were gone, okay, we can open our doors again, everybody back in the pool. Right, and it right. just didn't, it didn't work. It's still not working, right.
0: but people, people were yeah. there. You know, um, you have a great uh, uh, ice hockey icon up there uh, in Canada, Bobby Orr. Um, right. And he just, you know, so far as I, I'm not a, a, an ice hockey fan by any stretch, but so, as far as I could say, he was like the goat of ice hockey. know, he's the greatest of all time. And I've read a number of places where he was asked Repeatedly, you know, what he thought his secret of success was. And he, and he said over and over again, I skate to where the puck is going to be. And that's innovation. Pivoting or adaptation is skating to where the puck is is now. And that's, you know, you, it's, it's like watching kids play soccer, right? Six-year-olds, watch six-year-olds play soccer. It's flock ball, right? They're all around the ball, uh, all 22 of them. And there's like a dust cloud above them. Now, if the ball moves as it did in the early days of COVID, the ball moved. 22 people moving with the ball is not innovation, right? That's adaptation, right? The ball moved, we move. The ball moves, we move. The ball moves, we move. What happens when the ball moves next time? We move. Uh, Bobby got it right. Skate to where the ball is going to be.
1: So in your new book, I know it's toward the end, but do lead. It's a, it's a, for those of you who are not big readers, this is under a hundred pages. Like, and there's pictures. So fantastic. Very <laughs> great, readable. Great
0: illustration, huh.
1: You cover failure. And I know that's mm. toward the end of the book, but how do you counsel someone when they feel like they're failing as a leader? You know, people have listened so far into the interview and they're like, okay, I'm not a resilient guy and I'm not, we're not very innovative. Okay, right. now what? Like, how do you counsel people through that?
0: Well, I think I want to make a, a distinction. First of all, I want to take the sentence that you used because it's a very, it's the most commonly used sentence in the context that we're talking about. Now. And, and I want to break it down and then and change it just a little bit of a may, You talked about how do you counsel people who feel like they're failing and feeling like you're failing does not necessarily mean you're failing. That's the first thing. And the, so I, but a third of all that I do is coaching with, with leaders. That's what I do. I, I live on Zoom coaching folks. And obviously, I've got a self-filtering thing where the folks who come along and pay me, it's not cheap to be coached by me, they're typically already great leaders. They're trying to get from, from great to incredibly good. Uh, so it's a great privilege to do it. But they, like everybody else, uh, you know, have those uh, times and they feel like they're failing. And the first thing we try to do is to establish, do they feel like they're failing or are they failing? And the distinction usually comes down to uh, mapping themselves up against an unrealistic set of expectations. And so you're not failing, you're just holding up a completely unrealistic set of expectations, which are usually not pla- not self-generated. They're usually placed on us. One of the things I talk about in the book is the huge disservice that the last, probably now maybe 30 years, were media reporting of leadership. First of all, it blew up, uh, because it, it happened on one day which was the first day of the first Iraq war back in George H.W. Bush's time. And the reason for that very specific timeframe is that was when CNN went live for its first 24-hour rolling reporting. That blew up. Cable TV became huge. The internet came along and suddenly we need like a gazillion more stories than we ever had to fill all of that. Before, you you know, 23 pages of a newspaper of which 18 were obituaries or local for sale classifieds or whatever, you know, a few stories got you through. Now we need an enormous amount of stories and the stories must all have an arc. There's gotta be a problem and a solution and a hero. Even, you know, the just grab your newspaper, go to your website of choice, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And what happens is we get We get bombarded with stories of large and small heroism. Leadership is not heroism. Heroism is a subset sometimes of leadership. Most leadership, most successful leadership is incredibly mundane. Incredibly. Brilliance, I said in the book and I said over and over again, brilliance is built on the mundane. You get the mundane things right, you can be brilliant over and over again on top of that. You're lucky you can be brilliant once or twice because you catch lightning in a bottle. You wanna be consistently brilliant. You've got to master the mundane. Now, what happens with, with with great leaders, good leaders, is they read about Elon Musk wanting to colonize Mars, and they feel like a failure. Well, okay, knock yourself out. That's like every person in the congregation thinking they've got to be the apostle, Paul, oh, you know, it's just, you know, it, it just let's let's work out. Do you feel like you're a failure or are you a failure? So that's the first thing. And a lot of that is to do, I, I would say, particularly with beginning leaders, is to do with mm. the imposter complex, you know, the imposter syndrome. It's just, I don't, mm. I don't feel it. So dealing with that first. And if you can't find some tools to deal with that over time and you're gripped with the imposter syndrome all of the time, you'll never achieve what you really could do. Uh, and you'll burn out pretty early. So do you, the second thing is, if, if if what we do is we look at all of this and say, no, actually, I failed. I did a thing which led to having to shut down this plant or uh, I did a thing and it used up a third of our cash reserves and we got nothing back, whatever it might be. Mm. Well, it, it, I, here's where, again, this may not be, the most helpful thing but I just to all of our listeners, but I just want to tell the truth, spend a little bit of time, do what I call the hard, dirty fingernail work, do a forensic analysis of it, work out why that happened, and don't do that again. Don't do that again. <laughs> yeah. You know, and sometimes it's not that complicated, and you can beat up on yourself, and you can actually do what I call work avoidance, which is... Doing the equivalent of Linus from the, the Snoopy cartoons, you know, put your thumb in your mouth and, and rub your your blankie and just mm-hmm. wallow a little bit in that sense of, you know, oh, poor me, I didn't do a good job. Okay. We all need to spend a little bit of time on that. But if you actually fail at some point, I talk about this in the book, you've got to do a very clinical autopsy of what just happened. Learn the lessons and don't do it again.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's super, super advice. And I think that's right. It's like I burn my hand on the stove. Don't touch the stove. The same way yes, I, get, yeah. right?
0: like, I, I get. I get absolutely torqued with the fail fast, fail often mantra. It drives me around. It, it just drives me round. Like, Why would you do that? Why would you <laughs> fail fast? Why would you do that? Do you think that was how Roger Federer became the greatest tennis player of all time? By telling himself every day I'm going to fail fast and I'm going to fail often. No, it's good you do fail to get past it fast, and it's good if there are going to be ways in which you just you're going to fail. Statistically, that's going to happen. Good to get past them, but to make that your leadership mantra, <laughs> give me a break. Give me. I I don't I I, I I don't want to be in whatever you're doing if what you're signing up for is failing fast and failing often. I you know, doesn't work for me.
1: You've mentioned imposter syndrome a couple of times. What do you want to say to leaders about imposter syndrome, less?
0: We all pretty much suffer from it. And you need to find a way to manage it. And one of the best ways to manage it is to get a couple of honest relationships with fellow leaders. Uh, you know, relationships where you can, you can talk honestly about what you're facing and how you feel about it. Therapy is really good. I mean... This sounds a bit. We were coming from an Irishman. Yeah, I got to tell you, it took me a long time to think about that. Uh, but you can get a lot of unpaid great um, therapy by just getting yourself into a, a good grouping of fellow leaders that you can sit down and talk about it. Because the majority of imposter imposter uh, syndrome thrives on a lack of transparency. Mm. It thrives on being intimidated by the facade that some other people put up. They're either, they're, you know, one of the uh, dirty little secrets here is that there are people who get their kicks, who, who think of themselves as leaders. They're not when you look at it, but they think of themselves as leaders. And they get their kicks from actually making other people feel bad. They don't think that's yeah. what they're doing. Um, I thought... <laughs> I, I, I thought I came up with a new phrase for this uh a week or so ago, and uh, I'm disappointed to find it I came back from the the event it was at uh where I'd come up with this and I googled it and I found out other people had used it before. but there's a there's a a syndrome which i the phrase that I've used for it is exact explaining. You know, have you ever been in a room where somebody just sitting there exact explaining? Well, you know, we did that back in oh, I think it was '06, and the key metric you've got to know about there is uh, there's no way this is going to work unless we. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And what they're doing is they're protecting their self image by in, inducing in other people, as uh, if they're not careful, the other people, uh, the other people, a, a sense of the imposter syndrome. How does how does she know that much? That much? How does he, how has he got where has he got that from? I I don't think about things like that. I. You know when you're in the it, when you're in the presence of a true leader, and they come up with a genius idea, you'll think it was at least partially your idea. Because that's how true leaders operate, right? Yeah, yeah. it beca- at least becomes a sense of being collegial. But you don't find yourself thinking, "Oh, I'm such a jerk." I'm, I'm, you know. So there's that, and there's just all the stuff that the that the press puts out, you know um like I, I mean here's a a good example uh, and we might come back to it when we talk a little bit about the distinction between the leadership distinction between focusing on on uh, goals and objectives and people uh I, I remember years ago uh, uh chesney Sullenberg or captain sully landed yeah. that plane on the hudson magnificent act of leadership right magnificent Great movie, i get to see, see the on a, a great movie. Is it Tom Hanks? I can't remember. Yeah, I think Tom Hanks plays him. Yeah, yep. uh, he pays all the great people. Um, and I, I got the great privilege of seeing, you know, the the executive, uh, uh, corporate equivalent of that happen from time to time. Do you, I mean, if that is the only sort of pinnacle of leadership in that role, every pilot in North America should adjust got themselves another job the next day, right? That, right. But that's, you know, I mean, of course you might feel, a little, professionally you might think, I hope I would have been able to do that if that was me. Or, wow, I don't think I could do that. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to re on my simulator training or whatever. But what happens in, in business and in uh, not-for-profit leadership a lot is we see and hear the equivalent of those stories and we allow it to transform itself into something that evokes imposter syndrome in us, which is crazy. Just crazy. Understandable, but crazy.
1: You have a different definition of leadership. You mentioned John Maxwell's leadership is influence. I think Drucker's was leaders have followers, right? Look over your shoulders, anybody following you. Why are those insufficient? Why is yours different? And, And
0: what is it? Uh, well, I, I have to say, first of all, and I think I make this clear in the book, I'm a huge admirer of both, uh, two incredible uh, teachers, very much so. Um, here's the, uh, the, the reason I wrote Do Lead is because I felt that there was, first of all, there was no real definition of leadership that made sense to me. And secondly, everybody had a different one. So... You know, I, I sit in rooms with leaderships all the time, physical and virtual. That's my day, you know, I'm and in my rooms, physical or virtual with leaders. And we're all, uh, you know, calling this elephant a different thing or thinking about a different thing. And I wanted to, to nail it down. And a lot of leadership definitions uh, talk about what the impact of the leadership is on the people who are following the leader.
1: Hmm.
0: At the end of the day, that's frankly irrelevant. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with, and often as a subset of, of delivering in your leadership, which I'll define in a second or two, it does mean being able to motivate, develop, challenge people. That's all a very important subset, but that's not leadership. Leadership is any act that gets two or more people closer to their common goals. The only reason leadership exists is because there's somewhere we need to get to. If there's nowhere to get to, you don't need a leader. If you know where to get to, you don't need a leader. If there's somewhere to get to, what do you need from a leader? They've got to get you closer to those common goals, ideally reach them. So leadership is any act that gets you closer to your common goals. Now what happens, and it happens in spades in the church, is we confuse all of that with things like mentoring, coaching, motivation, uh, alignment, all important, all important, not leadership. And I'll, mm-hmm. and I'll, and I'll let me bring this back to, our, I, I, let's put it on the example we just talked about, about Sully land and the plane on the Hudson, right? Part of, you're running an airline. You know, you wanna you you wanna lead your airline, you want it to do well. Part of what you're gonna do is you're gonna train your folks to, you know, be nice to the customers. Be, you know, do you want another cup of coffee? can I kinda top up your gin and tonic? You I know, mean, all that sort of stuff, you know. If if you're sitting on that plane and it's it's screaming towards the Hudson, and Sully comes wandering out, says, Hey, how are you buddy? Can I top <laughs> up that coffee for you? you're going to say, get the back, get in, there. right? Yep. What do you want them to do? get? Just do this thing. And leadership is usually about the mundane in between. And so I give some examples. The day that I wrote that section, I just pulled out, you know, my web pages, the stuff that I get my news in the morning, and I pulled the first five leadership stories that, that people were talking about. And they were about, you know, somebody who, uh, I think one of them, I'm not going to quote them all, but one of them was, I remember it was the day uh, an owner of, I think it was a business up in Seattle, had decided everybody was going to get $80,000 a year, and he, including that. him. He was, uh, yeah. You remember that? Thing? And there were stories like all. Heroic leadership. Great. Love it. Tiny, tiny subset. It's not even the stuff above the surface. It's just a tiny bit under the surface. In my world that day, and this was actually back at the time whenever I had some employees, uh, a group of us had to go somewhere and my then-darling wife went to her gym early, did her workout early so she could come back, and I could get, I could use our car, I could take mm. us to. That's an act of leadership. It's a not-so-random act of leadership. It's mundane, but why is it an act of leadership? It's something that gets two or more people closer to our common goals, right? And that's what leadership is. Now, mm. is the other stuff wonderful and important? And sometimes do the two completely conflate? Absolutely, yes. You're, I, I don't like um, using war and sports as proxies for for organizational growth because they're not, they're different things. But sometimes they can be useful. And this is one of those examples. You're, uh, you know, the, the coach of, I'm British, so I'm going to talk about soccer and sure. you all, the Canadian listeners would be great with this. Uh, You know, you're Pep Guardiola. You're running the best club in the world, Manchester City. Does your job occasionally mean standing on the touchline, screaming like you're a banshee to motivate your your players? Yes. Is that leadership? Could he take the rest of the week off and just have those three minutes and get whatever millions he's getting paid for? No. The vast majority of it is mundane, dirty fingernail work. Hmm. Really mundane stuff. So leadership is any act that gets two or more people closer to their common goals. And I know you didn't ask me this, and I know I'm on a rant, but I'm going to say this anyway. One of the most uh, freeing things of that definition is that it means that leadership is, A, not an elite act. It's not something that only people with the title leaders can do. It means something that any can do you make the coffee run for your team of analysts who are doing a late pulling a late night an all-nighter not so random act of leadership it also means however leadership is not necessarily permanent you don't have to be permanently a leader to make not so random acts of leadership you can step into a, a, a you know a transient leadership mode, and do something that helps your team, group, division, department, organization get closer to its common goals. And then just go back to being the barista, you know? So you're working in your local coffee shop, a big line of, you know, you're bussing tables, a big line appears at the register. You jump in behind, you help out at the register, not so random act of leadership. You're helping two or more people, you and your crew get through a shift. You're helping the customers enjoy their experience. And then just go back to bussing tables. Does that mean you became the manager No. So, end of rant. Ah,
1: Great rant. And you know what? For leaders who, I get this question a lot, leaders who are trying to recruit other leaders, it expands the definition of leadership. Volunteers, et cetera, inside an organization. It makes you look at it differently. So, you do in the book, and Do Lead, you talk about natural-born leaders, self-made leaders, and reluctant leaders. What are the differences, and why do the differences matter less?
0: Um ultimately, they only matter when we come back to our resilience point. <laughs> uh, and what I find is that actually the self-made leader, the one who's made a choice at a particular point and decided to commit to this, are usually the ones that being, build a stronger amount of resilience. Natural leaders, and we've all met them, right? They're people who... They probably were running, you know, the the lunch crowd at their school, you know, kindergarten. They, you know, they 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 hold a crowd. They, you know, they just they're going to lead one way or the other. They have a, a, a you know their tank starts uh, a little fuller than uh, resilience starts a little fuller than everybody else's. They've got a you know they start with a natural amount of resilience, but it's the self starter who tends to be the one who builds more innate resilience because they know they've got to build that muscle sort of like it's like looking at the natural uh you know sports jock just built Uh for this and the guy who is at the gym like for three hours every day they they, you know they've got to do this to 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 in order to perform they tend to build more resilience and the ones with the least resilience tend to be the reluctant leaders for obvious reasons Now, i love reluctant leaders that's you know, that's somebody who just found themselves in a position. You know, you can think about the, we've got a fantastic example going on in real time at the moment, which is the president of Ukraine. Uh, you know, he got himself voted in before this happened. Reluctant leader, look at what's happened. Look at what's happened. And he's going to have a huge amount of reluct- amount of resilience that he's built up because he's also now become a self-made war leader. But I sort of suspect when, because I'm, I'm all in for it not being if, when he gets through all of this, he's not going to keep running for president You know, I said, all right, guys, I think think I'm done for this. I'm "I'm done. His continuity of purpose is very, very fixed. So that's what I see the difference. Now, I don't see any difference in ultimate competence and capability. You can get perfectly capable and uh, incapable, incompetent, natural, self-made, or reluctant leaders. That's a whole different thing. Not one of the great mistakes we make is to assume that every natural leader is necessarily a good leader. There are a lot of very natural jerk leaders. It just comes naturally to them to be bad at this, Mm -hmm. and they can't Mm -hmm. help themselves. They keep. We've all met them, right? Oh yeah. You know, it's not like the first time you confront a bad leader with the fact that they're a bad leader that they say, "Oh, you're right. I'll not do that again." They just go somewhere else and be a bad leader elsewhere. And, And sadly, the church and and for-profit businesses full of stories of bad leaders who got found out and just moved on somewhere else.
1: Well, that's a nice segue into another point you make, that um, great leadership is not goal-oriented, it's people-oriented, which is a little bit counterintuitive as well, or at least contrary to a point, lot of the I literature. I think the
0: point I make is, I think the point I make is the other way, Ron. It's not people-oriented; it's oh, goal-oriented. You're right.
1: I misread the question. You are totally right. Okay, so let's pick yeah. it up. It is not people-oriented; it's goal-oriented, which is uh yeah. Go go ahead and unpack. And that.
0: It, it 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 comes to our it comes back to our definition. If the definition of leadership is, as I believe it is, any act that gets two or more people closer to their common goals, then first of all it leadership is an act. It's something you've got to do. You know, I, I, you can sit around just sort of saying I am a leader because I sort of emote leadership or I say leadery things, but at some point you've got to do something, right? Because a leader's job is to get us closer to our common goals. And it's, that, that's why I said it's goal oriented. You, you, you can't afford to wake up and say every day and say, how do I make, make my people feel better? That's, Unless, unless your job is the title is people better feeler then you know, that's not, you can do that. You can have a whole bunch of happy people and they'll very quickly get unhappy because you, you're not helping them get where they want to go. Yeah. So that's, that's why I said uh, leadership is about achieving those goals. Now, does it mean that you've got to have the ability to be people oriented? Absolutely. Absolutely. But there are a ton of other things you've got to be good at as a leader as well, just just being people-oriented. And this is particularly tough in the church, because people orientation is at the core of of most ministries, right? But that doesn't mean that your job as a leader is just to make everybody feel good. It's to get them closer to their common goals.
1: Well, that's where I wanted to go next. I'm so glad we're talking about it, because there's a lot of leaders listening who would say, well, I feel like my job is to make people somewhat happy or to satisfy their demands or their needs. Because when it doesn't happen, I get in trouble. I can get fired. That's the expectation. And those are also the leaders who are really frustrated with their jobs. Right. I almost never right. meet a people pleaser who loves their work or somebody who says, yeah, I'm trying to make people happy. First of all, it never works. You're not going to make everybody happy. So right. speaking to that, um, because what happens if you are... Trying to make it people-centric, and I'm just going to make everybody happy.
0: Right. In order to to um, I speak into that with the most helpful content, I want to. I want to, and I, I may be uh, foreshadowing a, a question that you would have for later. So uh, let me just try to conflate the two. I want to distinguish between the four types of leaders that I see out there. And again, yeah, okay, great. I didn't make any of this up. This is just me putting labels on on what I see happening everywhere. I talk about this in in the second book, uh, The Synergist, uh, and, and, and in Duluth. So we've got the type of leader that we most often think of, which I call a visionary leader, right? So that's the, that's the big story. Uh, work at 30,000 feet can bring, uh, you know, reality distortion to bear, risk taker, Elon Musk. You know, uh, it was uh, it was Steve Jobs for a long time. And now Elon, something fell from the sky. He got it, not him. So you, we can, and we can, all of us, when you think about leaders, we can list a thousand visionary leaders. There are three other types. We have the operator leader and the operator is only interested in one, is only interested in results. That's all our visionary wants, wants to deliver in this picture. The operator leader goes through breeze block walls. It's just, we've got, uh, we've got a service in 30 minutes. Get the chairs out. Just get the doors open. Stop talking. Don't talk to me. Do this, do this, do this. Operator leaders, do, 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 do. Then we've got processor leaders who you rarely see that much or hear that much. They're making sure we measure twice and cut once. Mm-hmm. They make sure, no, 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 hold on a minute. Let's not just do this could we write down how we do our Easter service so that we don't all get together three weeks beforehand next year and invent it all from scratch again? You know, they're thinking about how do we repeat stuff. The fourth style, which is relatively rare in for-profit and is overwhelmingly the case in church environments, is what I call the synergist leader. And those are people-focused leaders. So visionary, here's where we're going to go. Operator, I get it. Let's go. Gonna make mm-hmm. it happen. Processor. Oh, let me measure that. Let me, let me find out a way to process that. Let me get a spreadsheet up here. We should all use Asana. You know, all that sort of stuff. And then the synergist leader is getting everybody together. Are you happy? Are you comfortable? Are you like this? Are we aligned? Leadership for any organization that goes above ten or eleven people has got to have the balance of all four of those. You need all four. But what happens often in founder-owner businesses and uh, churches that have got a senior or lead pastor who was often also the founding pastor, they're trying to do all of that in one person or two people. And the synergist role is the noisiest one in the church environment Mm -hmm. because that gets conflated with being what we're here to do. We're here to make people happy. And so the synergist uh, leadership style takes over. And uh, actually what happens is it's the visionary and synergists who end up talking a lot. Oh, this is what we're going to do. Oh, I'll go and make sure everybody's on board. And the operator and processor stuff doesn't get done as effectively as it should. We're all still in there talking. And the and the service should have started 20 minutes ago. The one operator on the leadership team is sitting there going crazy. What, what do you do? So that's where I think uh, we, we we can find that conflation of being people-focused, particularly in a church environment, takes us away from what is, frankly, our overall mission and the goals we need to do. And sometimes, it's said at the start, saying no to things, to people. It's come out as, a, as an echo in our whole discussion, just the ability to strategically say no, not because you're being a jerk, but because you've got clarity and you're focused on what it is that we need to do. That ability to say no will help you grow any organization for profit or not for profit. So if
1: you're that people-oriented person, how do you get around that? Can you learn the skill of an operator, a visionary, a processor? Do you hire around that? Like, What do you do?
0: I'm going to give a, I've got a slightly technical answer, and if uh, the listeners will 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 hang in for me for a moment or two, then it will become uh, wider and more applicable, readily applicable. It depends on the degree to which you are that synergist leader. So. I've been talking for caricature terms as and clarity terms as if we're just one or other. Most of us are not. Most of us have got a primary style, a lead style, and a, at least a secondary style. So I'm a visionary, op, a visionary processor. That's a. It's a, a rare breed except in cons- many consultants or visionary processes. So we I like two to of those on our team, our little team. Okay. Visionary so they, they bring consulting yeah. solutions. They they like to find elegant solutions to stuff and then help you implement a way to do it. Right. They don't particularly want to do it themselves. They want to see the vision and then help you do it. So um what when we come back to our synergist leader. Uh, and by the way, for the listeners, they can go to Synergist Quiz, all one word, Synergist Quiz. Maybe you'll put that in the show notes.com. Mm-hmm. And you can spend seven or eight minutes totally free, answer a bunch of uh, uh, questions, and it'll spit out your mix. I've uh, been doing it for years. with Over half a million people have taken it, very tried and tested. You'll enjoy the results. Uh, and what happens is um, you can be a maximum, st- and this is where I'm going to be a little technical just for a minute, but it doesn't really matter. Ignore the numbers. Just Just stick with me. If you were all synergist, you'd score 960 on the synergist uh, on this little quiz, and zero on everything else. Anywhere up to 480, uh, but halfway up there, you can control that synergist style. Hmm. Uh, the sweet spot for any of the styles, you want to be a visionary operator processor synergist, is sort of 240, 480. You own that style at that stage. If, as happens a lot in the church world, you score higher than 480. The closer you get up to that that 980, the more you're what we call a dominant. But in this case, we're talking about synergist. It can apply to any of those styles. You can be a dominant visionary, dominant operator, dominant processor, dominant synergist there are a lot of dominant synergists in the in the church space because it attracts leaders uh, you know if you if you if you're a dominant synergist you want to help people there are no value judgment here nothing wrong with this you look around where can i help people if you're a person of faith your church is the very first place you're going to go to so that attracts mm-hmm. them. there aren't that many dominant synergists in uh, the the cutthroat world of commercial for profit business because somebody looks around and says Hey, Joanna, what are you, why are you in my office again for the third time today? I do not want to have coffee with you again. No, I don't want to talk about the last release of the project. Just go, I have a job to do. So the distinction is this. If you're a dominant synergist, if you're a primary synergist, 240 to 480, you own that style. If you're a dominant synergist, the closer you are to, 4, to 980, that style owns you. You're blinkered. You can't see any other you're not going to be happy with any other solution. If I don't get a if I don't get a happy smile from everybody, I'm not going to be happy. That is problematic, and it needs coaching. It's not a good thing to be a dominant anything. It's not good to be a dominant visionary operator processor or synergist because you become blinkered and you don't accept the optimal decision for the church as a whole. Right. If we huh. say no, we're gonna we're gonna shut this ministry down, it's 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 a it's exhausting our resources, it's taking our money away from what we know we can do. I'm just making up a decision here. A dominant right. synergist will find that very hard. Oh, there's th- three people who are permanently employed in that. How can we do that? We can't do that. So that's so, that's where so that can be. Where's the hope, the
1: church? Like so many, so many churches are or organizations, even businesses, very small staff. You're a synergist, you're trying to please everybody. What's the way out, or is that your relational jail you're in for the rest of your leadership life?
0: No, it's not. I, I, not, I don't think any of it's um, uh, pre. Uh, except in Wesleyan churches, it's not in any way predestined. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, you don't have to stick there. What happens is this: um, first of all, just recognition. One of the greatest things that that I, I you know, in a sense, my ministry that we're talking about uh, going around helping people with predictable success is that um, shared vocabulary and recognition of of a, of, a, of the sorts of terminology that I've just talked about is incredibly helpful. Just being able to see it enables you to say, oh, wait a minute, I think we have that issue. So we've got this very visionary lead pastor who wants us to, you know, take over the world by Friday, and we've got a three, four synergists who just want to jump out, grab their team, talk about it, you know, Meetings are great, but, oh, at the end of it, did we do anything? Have we got any action points? We need more operators, we need whatever. So just recognition is one thing. And the second thing is um, just coaching in its simplest sense of saying, okay, when you find yourself getting you know, irritated with solutions being proposed that don't hit your style, and it doesn't just happen with with processors. These dominant visionaries get really irritated if you're trying to play small ball to fix something. They always want a grandiose solution. Even when a grandiose solution is the last thing you need, you just need like, you know, let's move this thing from here to here. Operators get very frustrated with solutions that aren't immediately applicable. Processors get frustrated with solutions that don't have belt and braces built in, redundancy built in. But once you see that, you can begin to coach each other as a team. And I you know I have the joy of seeing it all the time. People say, oh no, no, wait a minute. That's the processor and you coming out. You know, we don't need to open a spreadsheet for this one thing we're doing one time only. Let's just do it and don't worry about systems. Or, you know, uh, you know, I know you would like us not just to have just to go visit a couple of people who are in hospital. We do it one time, you want us to have a hospital ministry. That's a visionary solution, right? We did it once and it was good, so let's change the world. Just recognizing that and mutually coaching each other using shared vocabulary can be very powerful. And again, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, was to provide the vocabulary and the ability to share it internally with your team.
1: Well, Les, you have so much wisdom for the team, uh, for teams and for leaders. Uh, This is for business leaders, for -for not-for-profit leaders. It's called Do Lead. Any final words you want to share for leaders we've covered so much?
0: Uh, I, well, apart from, uh, by the book, I, I, wrote, I wrote it for you, and I think you'll benefit it from it. Uh, I think uh, my closing words would be kind to yourself. Most leaders are way, way, way too hard on themselves. Be kind to yourself. You're, the people you lead need you to do that.
1: That's great. Les, uh,
0: where can people find you online these days? PredictableSuccess.com, all one word. PredictableSuccess.com, lots of free stuff there. You can get a copy of the book. Um, uh, at the moment, we'll have a promo that we have a promo that will pop up. You can get a copy of Do Lead uh, free, just pay shipping. It's eight bucks for shipping, and uh, go get it. Fantastic, Les. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you indeed, Kerry. Well, I would encourage you to go back into the archives and discover less. Of course, you can just search that on the Googles or in the podcast app you're listening to, or you can get the show notes. Go to kerryneuhoff.com episode 528. You will find transcripts there. Increasingly, I am relying on transcripts and other people's shows. And maybe you would do the same. You can find that over at kerrynewhoffcom episode 528, or just search me and Les McEwen on the Googles and you will find us. So Next episode, we've got Brian Koppelman. I'm so excited. It's the first time I've interviewed a showrunner, somebody in TV and films. And well, here's an excerpt. Oh, well, yeah. That's, I mean, that's just, Dave, and I mean, that's one of the, okay, so that's one of the best things about getting to do this with your lifelong best friend. is like, I mean, that's just, that's just, those two guys were just the cool version of me and Dave in that moment. And I remember, I mean, that, that happened, you know, um, I was watching Oprah and probably crying and Dave walked in and, and, um, but you know, if you're a writer, you kind of remember those things. And so I remember pitching that to Steven Soderbergh saying, we have this notion that this thing, and he thought it was hilarious. And, um, I think Brad and George knew that they were doing some version of us. Also coming up, we have Nancy Duarte, John McRae Acuff, Lisa Turkers, Pat Lencioni, James Clear, Chris Anderson, Annie F. Downs, Erwin McManus, and much more on the podcast. If you like this episode, please leave a rating and review. And I want to give you something for free too, because you listen to the end, right? Churches that aren't just surviving but thriving in the season share eight common traits. So, If you want to weed out the unhealthy areas of your ministry and start leading a thriving church, you can get your free copy of the checklist and ebook by going to thrivingchurchchecklist.com. It's free. It's thrivingchurchchecklist.com. Check it out, and thanks so much for listening, everybody. Man, it is fun doing this. Had a couple of moments over the last little while where I thought, how's this my job? Uh, But it's my job and I love doing it. And we will do this week after week after week, as long as it serves you. Uh, Leave us a rating and review and we'll catch you next time on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.